Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind-the-scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of NAMPA's The Nature Photographer podcast with Wild and Exposed. Today, we have Andrew Snyder, a former board member for NAMPA, as well as a pretty heavily involved conservation photographer and biologist. So we'll get talking to him in just a moment. And then we have Ron Hayes from Wild and Exposed is also joining us today. So welcome, guys. I'm pretty excited about having Andrew here. I'm always interested in talking to him about his conservation efforts and the fun places he gets to travel to. But first, let's get Ron talking a little bit about he's up in Wyoming. So let's see what's going on up there these days. The wind is blowing. A lot. Down here in Colorado too, if you could. <laughs> yeah, we went from. We get it to stop. We went from about eighty degrees last week, and we've been averaging about forty here the last few days. Cooled off significantly. Unfortunately, we had some be- beautiful fall color, uh, which we are not necessarily known for. But there was a lot of reds and yellows. But as soon as the wind picked up, the leaves blew off the trees, so it was pretty short lived. Very good. And where are you coming to us today from, Andrew? I am in Maryland, um, just a bit north of Baltimore. So we've finally started to see some color on the trees. Um, the temperature here has just been incredible the last week. Lows at night in like the 50s and then, you know, around 70s during the daytime. We've really had some really, really nice weather. Oh, perfect. Yeah, Maryland can get some really pretty colors. That whole general area this time of year. Oh, yeah. just Just starting to get into it. A friend of mine just mentioned that southern new england was starting to see some really nice colors now too so so you we're done out here in the west and you guys will start to ramp up and then i'm out here in colorado um kind of dealing with still dealing with some wildfires out here we had another new one blow up yesterday but um from here in estes park we can actually see three wildfires now it's kind of kind of scary and creepy but you know a really good kind of segue into conservation and changes in our world and it's just it's so dry out here it's been so windy it's been so warm that all of that's really fueling the fires um and we have a lot of people because of covid there's a lot of people out outdoors right now you know there's not too much else to do so we get a lot of people out out hiking there's unfortunately there's a lot of people that may not have a ton of experience and that's kind of the theory around why we're really experiencing a lot more wildfires than we normally would or why a lot more are starting especially this late in the season. So so let's talk a little bit about why we invited Andrew to come on here today. He is a phenomenal conservation photographer. So why don't you tell us a little bit, Andrew, about what you're working on these days? Sure. Um, what am I working on? Uh, it's a, a little bit of everything. I find myself having to wear a whole bunch of different hats lately. Um, so I... The biggest thing that I've been working on and it's kind of been what I would consider as a photographer, most of my basically life's work, um, all of my graduate work took place in Guyana in South America, um, where I've traveled, gosh, I think it's been about 12 times now over the course of the last 10 years. Um, and whether it's for personal research or bigger expeditions with organizations like World Wildlife Fund or Global Wildlife Conservation, um, pretty much traveling extensively throughout the country to areas that have never really been scientifically explored before and are also facing a variety of conservation threats. So my my main body of work um, that I'm still kind of actively looking to synthesize for publications um, just as soon as I can kind of narrow down specific focus for each of these topics um, has been largely documenting the biodiversity, um, the conservation issues, um, and pretty much trying to just show a lot of people about this small country that not a lot of people have ever really heard of before. Um, It's a phenomenal location. It's approximately 87% of the country is still covered in intact tropical rainforests. It has one of the highest percentages of intact forests of anywhere in the world. Um, But 
like a lot of places like that, it is facing a lot of threats from deforestation, from mining. Um, so I basically had the opportunity to capture some of these pristine ecosystems, as well as going to locations that have already been decimated. Um, so being able to kind of show the befores and afters. So that has been my my largest ongoing project. Um, and then, you know, with with COVID, things have had to shift. Travel has ceased. Um, so then I've kind of turned the camera to the backyard um, to kind of keep things fresh, but then also, you know, making, keeping myself busy with um, finding things around here to shoot. Um, we purchased a house uh, last year and I decided to convert all of the landscaping to all native species um, to, to kind of, you know, A, be pollinator friendly, but then also try to bring in as many species, you know, as I can attract due to having, you know, their, their food sources and, and everything that will benefit them. Um, so that's, in a nutshell, that's, that's kind of been the big stuff that I've been working on. And I'm always about, I mean, as tough as this year has been for everybody, I'm always about finding the silver lining. So it sounds like your timing on getting a house and being kind of st stuck to being close to home, building a backyard habitat actually worked out really well then. Yeah, and it was also, um, so we have a 13-month-old, and part of my goal was to turn this yard into a space that will basically be a, a learning place for her. Um, I read a book when she was really little called How to Raise a Wild Child, and it's basically all about how to instill the love of nature in children. And, you know, us as photographers who love being outdoors or me as a biologist who for that reason loves being outdoors it's you know it's natural for us and i like to think it will naturally follow in with her as well but i figure if i can really just bring this this awesome experience to her from a young age and you know at the point where she can appreciate it the gardens are much more established uh, then it's a win-win for everybody I love that idea. I've always talked about having property where I can cr truly create, especially here in Colorado, truly create a, you know, habitat that would, you know, where you're not drawing the animals in by, you know, by, I don't want to use the term fake things, but, you know, salt licks, that kind of thing, but more natural, you know, the right foods, the right water sources, the right cover for them, you know, those types of things. So right. maybe someday. <laughs> right. Having grown up exactly like that, I think that, I can attest to that love of nature definitely taking hold even at a young age. That's, uh, you know, I grew up on a, a large ranch in Wyoming, and then my grandmother on my other side was outdoors all the time. And our curiosity, I guess, was was uh, fed constantly with her just taking us out and teaching us about, you know, the plants and their relationship to the large ungulates and their relationship to uh, predators and all of those things tied together to just give me a curiosity that's lifelong and continue to grow. So, yeah, I, I think what you're doing for your daughter is exactly what needs to happen to. And, and I think we need to find a way to reach out to others, not just our family members, but reach out to others and, and try to educate them in the same way just by getting them out there. Oh yeah. Yeah, one of the um one of the principles that this book outlined which I think is a, such a fantastic idea is this um what they call a sit spot where you make this spot whether it's in your own park or in your own backyard that's kind of my idea for building this backyard this way where you you have your your little haven. It's this one spot where you go and you sit and you just quietly observe the nature around you for a period of time. And the idea is you go to that same exact spot all throughout the year, different seasons, and you just start to notice all of the subtle changes that, you know, in day-to-day -day life as we kind of know it these days, people just pass right by and don't even notice. But these sit spots allow you to just really become tuned into the world around you. I love that idea. 
Yeah, you can see the yeah the changes over time, the changes over, and especially you know this year one of the things that we've noticed because of the wildfires is the pattern changes. You know the things that change with animals. So if you're really familiar with an area like that, like a sit spot, then you would see that change and see how new things are impacting the environment around you too. That's right. pretty fascinating. Wish I had one to compare to everything that's going on. <laughs> right. When I look at your portfolio, Andrew, I was looking in through your website. When I look at your portfolios, particularly in relationship to the Guyana images, the diversity is the first thing that strikes me. I mean, the reptiles, the bird life, the, you know, the bats. There are, how many species have you studied, captured, been able to photograph, would you guess? That's a good question. Um, I mean, easily in the thousands at this point. Um, so I, I'm very fortunate in my experiences that, so I have done several expeditions where it's just been me and a few local guides. Um, and most of those were specific to my graduate research. But I've also been a part of many expeditions where I am just one of many researchers. Um, so my my specialty is amphibians and reptiles. Um, so some of these larger expeditions, I was there to do the amphibian and reptile surveys, but then we would have other experts doing bird surveys, doing bat surveys, plant surveys, insects, fish, etc. So it really gave me a much greater opportunity to have photographic opportunities. You know, I'm not the one who's misnetting bats, but because we have an expert there who is catching them and he's bringing them back to camp so he can process them and take, you know, the necessary scientific data, I took advantage of the opportunity to be able to photograph everything as I did. Um, so, yeah, I'd say at this point, I'm probably a few thousand different species. I mean, whatever's up on the website is just a little a little blip of what I've been able to to see and experience and photograph. Um, and that's uh, especially why the Meet Your Neighbors project was something that I was incredibly attracted to because it really translates very, very well to scientific photography because you can just photograph the organism and only the organism and be able to pick up fine details or find, you know, scientific things um, like certain patterns that you might not pay as much attention to. Um, so it, it started as uh, joining Meet Your Neighbors kind of for fun and then really, really understanding from a scientific perspective just how valuable those types of images were too. Tell us a little bit about Meet Your Neighbors, you know, that that part of the iNaturalist program that you you've been kind of developing meet your neighbors was i believe he'll be on your show at some point soon was co-founded by clay bolt um and the idea was you know the general public would have this misconception that you need to travel to far off places in the world in order to see crazy looking biodiversity but the reality is incredible biodiversity is right in your backyard it doesn't matter where you live so by being able to remove a bit of the distraction of taking an image of something on say the ground or on a stick or you know with all the color and and other elements that while maybe attractive may be slightly detracting or distracting from what you're photographing so Clay had this idea to photograph the subjects on a completely white background. So it generally you have a sheet of acrylic and then that's where you'll place whatever you're photographing. And then you'll have a flash below it. So that way it will eliminate any shadows. And then you have a flash above to illuminate your subject. Um, so it basically just has your your subject appearing as if it's just floating on a white background. It's a pretty interesting project. And you look at like off of your website, you can see some of the categories and, you know, you have them separated out by regions of the U.S., like the southeast region. And it's it is really amazing when you can stop for a minute. And I think right now with COVID, a lot of us are really starting to 
truly appreciate that a little bit more. But if you stop for a minute and just say, wow, look at all these birds that show up or look at all these insects that are just outside my door. Or if I put plants out here, look at the spiders that it might attract or, you know, salamanders, if you're in a you know more humid environment or something, it's. Yeah, I'll tell you from just personal experience with regards to using the meet your neighbors set up in the field. I one of my greatest experiences to date was working with several of the the older indigenous people who would come on our expeditions with us and by taking these images of these insects and stuff that they you know interacted with in theory in the forests their entire lives but they've never taken the opportunity to stop and look at them so I was able to show them a glimpse of their forest that they know so much about and show them something that they had never seen before and they were just captivated by it and next thing i knew all of my ziploc bags were disappearing because they were taking them so they could catch stuff for me to photograph so they could see it you know up close and in greater detail than they would otherwise and they you know it was a great learning tool for them too interesting yeah that's uh that's a very interesting side effect to be able to show people that have lived in that environment their for generations and and pique their curiosity you can see where you know like going back to the project that you were talking about to try to instill that love of nature in your daughter how quickly that can take hold if we can just get people out there and how is so as we talk about this being a nampa podcast that we're doing with wild and exposed uh, how does how is nampa kind of being involved with with that project so um a whole lot of NAMPA members are part of the Meet Your Neighbors project. Um, and now as things have evolved a bit more, um, one of the things that we have been developing through NAMPA is a greater involvement in iNaturalist, which these Meet Your Neighbors photos do you know, align with quite well. Um, so just to sort of segue a little bit into to iNaturalist and to citizen science in general um, as photographers, um, we are establishing a large scale NAMPA project on iNaturalist where NAMPA members can go out, shoot any subject under the sun that they want and upload it into the iNaturalist project um, for NAMPA. So we're basically breaking it down into separate regions. Um, and then all of these observations will feed into a larger NAMPA umbrella project. So what we're hoping, especially as conservation is really on the forefront of a lot of nature photographers' minds these days. I mean, you know, if we all love the natural world, of course we want to make sure that it's conserved and, you know, it's going to be around for the long haul. Um, so what we're hoping that people will start to realize is that there's so much more value to their images than just making gorgeous images to hang on a wall or be printed in a book or a magazine, but there's actually real data that is associated with each and every one of these images that are taken. And whether you're photographing the most common bird in your area or uh, a vagrant bird that happens to have you know, on its migration path been blown somewhere that it wouldn't naturally occur, there is important information in every single photograph. And so what we're hoping is that we can really build some momentum with the NAMPA membership to take these images, upload them into the project, and then this stuff is actually used by real biologists and real researchers and contributes to valuable publishable science. You know, scientists can't be everywhere all the time. And it's imperative that the citizens who are in these areas are able to be able to contribute. And so we're predominantly using the iNaturalist platform for what we're hoping to accomplish with citizen science and with the NAMPA membership. Um, but on NAMPA's webpage, we actually have a large database of different citizen science type projects that people can can still contribute their images to, whether it's a project like Leaf Snap, when the trees or 
plants start emerging in the early spring, you can take a picture, upload it, so that way scientists can basically track how what time of the year flowers are starting to open. And you know, one year to the next year might not be tremendously informative, but if this data comes year after year after year, you can start actually noticing patterns and trends and provide, you know, important information. Um, but all a lot of these kind of do associate with iNaturalists. So that's why, you know, we're we're ultimately going with this platform. But it also holds a lot of fun potential um, where we can set up future bio blitzes or we can, you know, have incentives for for different NAMPA members, whether, you know, get people excited about it and whoever contributes the most images in a given year, or the most unique observations will will get something special. Um, so there's there's a lot of good that's going to come out of this project for NAMPA and also for science. The connectivity of a group like NAMPA too, and the networking possibilities lend themselves to benefiting this kind of citizen science as well. I had a friend who, she worked at a bird sanctuary in Alberta, and she called me. She says, hey, we've got a blue a mountain bluebird with a harness on it, and it is it looks like it's going to nest just south of you in Wyoming. And so not only do we know where that bird the the tracking started where it spends its its time in the in the summer but we also knew in the winter time it ended up in Wyoming and we were able to find that bird in a nesting in a bluebird nesting box about 120 miles south of where I am <laughs> it's it's kind of fun for someone outside of the purview of those projects to be able to take part in it in that way and i can see where you know, allowing others to to have that benefit and to be able to see the information that's gained from those types of images and, and that type of information, I think it it helps all of us to take a take a deeper look at the world around us. Well, it gives people ownership too, and that's a big part of really getting people involved is that they have to feel like they they have an impact, they have you know a piece of that puzzle. And they can say, hey, I was part of that. Even if it was a small piece, I, you know, I was still part of that. Well, this is also kind of our, our hope for the, the broader membership to feel like, you know, a lot of people want to get into conservation photography, but may not necessarily know where to start or also thinking big picture, like I need to go document Pebble Mine, I need to go document poaching in Africa. And, and that's not true. You don't you conservation begins in your backyard and just making, you know, a valuable scientific contribution of just photographing the species that are in your backyard at a given time. That is important. And that does lend itself towards conservation down the line. And, you know, that's I think what we're hoping is that this is also going to make people realize that you know, I the amount of times I heard at, at summits in the past at Nampa that people once upon a time I wanted to be a scientist or a biologist, but I wasn't that great at subject X, Y, or Z. So I went a different path. But they deep down still, you know, have that dream or that wish that that was something that they pursued. And on some small level, this is still giving people that opportunity to be that scientist or be that biologist that they, you know, professionally never truly became. But just because you're not a professional or it's not on your business card does not mean that in some way you're not making some good scientific contribution. Well, and, and you know, and a lot of us are recognizing this or learning it or accepting it maybe is the good way to describe it with, you know, everything with COVID and being closer to home these, these days. You know, your backyard is what you know best. So you can see it day in and day out, and you're going to see, you know, just like the animals that live there, they know when there is a, even the smallest change that might be something that if a scientist only comes in for a week or two weeks, they're not going to recognize those things, at least not as easily as somebody that knows that that habitat, you know, because they do, they drive by it every day on the way to the grocery store or to work, or, or they know you know, they know exactly when the seasons change or when the bluebirds show up or you know, they can almost down to a day say, well, this is when this will happen. So I can be out there to photograph it. You know, I've I've learned over the years that 
science or that's excuse me photographers are some of the best at learning and understanding animal behavior because you know a lot of us want to go out and we want to capture that that image that shows a special behavior whether it's you know male elk fighting or you know the you spend so much time observing and just waiting for that shot that you inevitably learn the signs you learn the behavior and sometimes photographers have as much if not more knowledge than than certain scientists just based on their experience of sitting watching and waiting i was just uh, mark had sent us uh, we have a group chat obviously between the four of us so that we can communicate throughout the week and mark just sent us a story about a a bird it looks like it's a plover but they just recorded it going from alaska to new zealand and it basically was a straight flight wow that's crazy <laughs> and photographers had documented both locations or it was documented through photography in both locations, uh, Alaska and New Zealand. And just to take a little tiny part of that story is something that is, is fairly incredible. Now, you are on the Conservation Committee with NAMPA. So for those of us that are learning about the organization, and, and I believe that's what this podcast is for, is to educate folks about all the things that NAMPA does. Could you explain what the Conservation Committee does and, and how they can be a part of that outside of you know, what you've already discussed? The Conservation Committee was basically another committee that got reformed and rebranded into, into what it is today. It's most important, I think, to point out that just like NAMPA, we are ever-evolving. Um, there are a few of us that are on it, um, and what we're really ideally hoping to achieve is make conservation more um, available, if you will, as to the NAMPA photographers. Um, so we have a series of different eBooks that have either already been published or are in the process and will be coming out shortly. So kind of gives some background into kind of the history of conservation photography, how to get involved in conservation photography. Uh, we have an ebook coming out shortly, which is about how as a photographer to go about working with scientists um, to whether it's involved with reaching out to them, documenting their research, um, basically telling that side of the story. Um, as I had just delved into, we've been really pushing the development of this iNaturalist project so that way the NAMPA membership can immediately contribute to conservation. And then, yeah, just trying to get make everything available to the folks that are not doing conservation work already. Um, and anybody that is interested is always uh, able to just reach out to myself or Dave Huth if they have ideas. One of the, we're really hoping to, to start getting some feedback once we have more of these resources out from the NAMPA membership to see, frankly, what it is they want from us. Um, what types of resources are, do they feel are missing um, or what would they benefit the most from? So we, we've tried to as I mentioned with the the citizen science database, we're just trying to put the resources out there and make everything available to people who may not know where to look to begin with in order to start their conservation photography career. And I will mention too, those handbooks that you just mentioned, Andrew, all of those are free to the public too. Right. So it's, it's not just a, a benefit for NAMPA members, but we're really trying to encourage from the NAMPA perspective of, you know, there's everybody can get involved in this stuff. You don't just have to be a NAMPA member, although we'd love to see you join NAMPA for many of the other benefits. Um, we'd like to make sure that, you know, the world in general just kind of understands that, you know, conservation's a, you know, it takes all of us to, to really improve some of these things. What kind of projects, specific projects can, can people be involved in? What are the, the specific things going on or data points that you're trying to collect currently? So right now, um, we've kind of 
dumped all of our resources into the handbooks and the iNaturalist work. Um, we we're basically in the brainstorming phase for what other projects we can do. Um, we will be hopefully soon launching a NAMPA conservation Mapdia page. So Mapdia is a visual storytelling platform, um, which basically is like a, a blog on steroids, if you will. Um, it's very visually appealing. So that way we can start getting NAMPA members to share their personal conservation stories that they've been working on. Um, and especially I, what we're really hoping to highlight are the people, the, the NAMPA members who may be a little less well known um, and really try to to help tell the stories for the people who are working hard on conservation uh, stories, but may not you know, be aiming at getting a, a National Geographic story or BBC Wildlife Magazine story, um, and just try to help give a, a voice to, to some of the smaller scale conservation projects that people are working on. That's interesting. I, you know, there's uh, apps out there like iBird, and it's a way for a community to share locations of, of wildlife, that type of thing. I'm cautious to share some of the locations of uh, some of our western birds, especially species like the sage grouse that are declining heavily. How can you contribute data points then to those declining species that that won't put more pressure on them? That's a good question, and this is going to this is going to be part of what we include with our launch, basically providing the the extra education background. So for one, there is a feature within iNaturalist where you don't need to actually share the specific coordinates. Um, and it's available, but only under special requests. So say, for example, a, a biologist or um, someone who is specifically working with the species finds your your image um, and sees that it is not the, the coordinates are not available, they can reach out to you directly and you can basically, as the photographer, make your own decision whether you want to then provide that information. What we're gonna suggest is if people are photographing species that are of special concern, um, whether it's because of poaching or any other reason that has driven them to become threatened, to exercise caution with sharing those images, um, you know, making sure that people realize that this information does go out there to the public. Um, so to maybe be a little bit choosy about what they they ultimately do share, um, especially especially for species that have had issues in the past. Um, we definitely want to stress making sure that if people are photographing things that. Um, there could be downstream issues to just maybe not share those images and just share some of the more common things. And that's the best part too of this project is you don't need to upload everything to it. You're, you can handpick what images you, you ultimately want to be included or ultimately what species you want included. Um, so we want to make sure that as this project does get launched, every single NAMPA member fully understands what, potential risks there are and to make sure that they they weigh the risks carefully. Yeah, and I just chose a, a local species, but I think of, you know, we've had guests on in the past that have photographed the rhinos in Africa and, you know, their point was do not share locations at all because of the because the poachers are out there looking for that information as well. If they can get coordinates as to where to find an animal, they will they will arrive at some point. And it's not even just rare animals, but it's rare particular animals within a species, you know, a particular wolf or a particular elk or, you know, you even see those types of things too. So beyond just the photographers providing the information into this database, what can then be used? What's the output from that database? Well, so a lot of it is to basically just get a better understanding of what species occur in a particular area at any given time. So it kind of goes twofold. So, you know, we're contributing to this project and we're adding occurrence records, but similar to 
people using eBird to see what birds happen to be in their area or observed in a location at a certain time. If you as a photographer deciding, you know, I'm going to I'm going to make a project to document say all the grasshoppers of the eastern United States, you can then utilize iNaturalist as a resource to find, okay, I this species I've never photographed before. I see it occurs in the coastal region of the Delmarva area. So this is where I'm going to prioritize looking. So it, it it's going to be a great resource for people to use for photographing their own particular projects. Um, but really, the idea is that this this information is available to be used by professional researchers, academics, um, you know, state conservation organizations to better manage what what is there. Um, but then it also acts as a, a temporal thing. You know, you can see year in and year out what times of the year certain species are being observed. Um, so, you know, in, in the short term, it might not seem like a whole lot, given that it's just here we're uploading a bunch of images that were taken in this one year. Cool, we have lots of different species that we've seen. But then when you start looking at the change over time, especially, you know, as related to climate change or wildfire season, you know, as wildfires are are becoming that much more commonplace, inevitably there's going to be some sort of impact on the biodiversity and large databases like iNaturalist can help show this information. Something else I saw, so you have a PhD, so you had mentioned that you, you have a graduate degree in your graduate studies, but it's actually a PhD, so you have a lot of education. Um, but one of the things I saw was a term called bio phylogeographic patterns in the Guiana Shield, which is down in South America. So we've talked a little bit about your work in Guiana already, um, but I'm kind of curious what that term means, that phylogeographic patterns. Sure. So um, in a nutshell, what it is, is it's looking at the spatial distribution of different genetic lineages within a particular species. So you have these different fields. So biogeography is the distribution of species over an area. But at with phylogeography, you're looking at it at a much more micro level. So, you know, individually as a species. So let's we'll backtrack to frogs, since that's what a lot of my work was on. Um, generally, frogs aren't traveling great distances. You know, they, they live in their area, uh, depending on the species, and then they don't really move all that far. But you have in large regions like the Amazon, you have a frog species that might be found over a good portion of the tropical rainforest throughout many countries. But if there's things between them, like rivers or large mountain ranges that might be hard to pass, inevitably frog A on one side of the river is going to be a bit genetically different than its counterpart of the same species, maybe 50, 60 miles away with multiple rivers between them. So phylogeography looks at the distribution of these different genetic lineages over space. And it, you can start to get an idea of how barriers like rivers impact gene flow among them. And so you look at it at the scale as to what's happening right now, but it's basically watching speciation take place in front of your eyes. Okay. It was just something I, I hopefully the listeners are interested in. I mean, it's a pretty <laughs> technical in-depth term, I think, but I happened to see it on your website and I thought I'd ask the question about what that means if others are taking a look at your website after they listen to this. It seems like that would be a fairly new field given the advances that you've made genetically or to be able to trace DNA, I guess. Right. I mean, it the, the term itself has been around for a while. Um, in the past, people would use just morphology, what the species look like. And maybe, you know, one population will have a pattern a certain way. And then 
another population, the pattern is slightly different. So they would, would look at it that way. But yeah, now with the, the genetic revolution, um, it's, it's dramatically changed what we know um, as biologists for biodiversity in general. I mean, what we're finding is that what used to be considered widespread species that are common throughout large, large areas. And I'm I'm more referring to smaller animals like amphibians and reptiles, not large ranging mammals. There's really this concept of a widespread species is not really a thing anymore. You actually have these smaller species that are in a much more condensed area of space um, that may look similar, but say, for example, its call is different. So, you know, the females of the species will only pick up the call that they know that is unique to their species. So even if it looks pretty much identical, there are these subtle differences that at a species level, they can tell each other apart. And then that brings into a whole new question, you know, the conservation issues, because if we had this widespread species that, in fact, is not one species, but it's 16 different species that each occur in a much smaller area, then they're each of those 16 species is facing a more of a threat because there's less area that they're they occupy. That's what I was going to say is, uh, you know, at what point and, and this goes to the research, obviously. But at what point does it go from a, a subspecies then to a completely separate independent species? And I, I'm sure that's, we could talk about that. I'd love to talk about that forever, but. <laughs> that's um, that's definitely one of the kind of age old arguments that you get in, in science. You know, some people might say genetics is enough. Other people may put less clout in it. Um the the trend these days when possible is to use as much available data as possible incorporate genetic data incorporate morphological data if there's call data available basically throw in as much data that will tell you something as possible um and the more that those data agree with each other then then the more likely it is to be to be true yeah and i i misspoke earlier i i was talking about the dna level but even back to Darwin's studies on the Galapagos, he was seeing morphological differences between the species on the islands and even, you know, from year to year based on rainflow and or rainfall and that sort of thing. So yeah, very interesting. And I'm sure I'd, if I asked all the questions I have right now, I'd be boring most of our audience. So I'll, I'll keep them to myself. <laughs> so something else I saw on your website was, um, in addition to, to all your other studies, was that you've done a lot of work with tarantulas, I think. And tarantulas are always fascinating to people. So, so um, yeah, I haven't necessarily done specific research on tarantulas. Um, once, once I first picked up my camera, um, which was back in 2008, um, and then subsequently got a macro lens, it completely changed my world of how I, I saw things. You know, I was never grossed out by spiders or anything, but I definitely developed a much deeper appreciation and fascination for them. Basically, once I started going to Guyana for my research and I was photographing pretty much everything I encountered in front of me, um, I started noticing just how many different tarantula species I was encountering. Um, and there was a colleague of mine um, who was very keen on identifying all of the species. And then, you know, he started informing me, well, this one's never officially been recorded for the country before. And it just developed an extra bit of excitement. Um, so then as the years went on, I would make sure to like keep an extra keen eye out for tarantulas um, just because, I mean, you go out on a night hike and you'll commonly see them on the sides of trees or walking along the forest floor, um, sometimes higher up in the trees on branches. Um, and I just started to, to really notice them a whole lot more. Um, and yeah, then it, it wound up leading to um, quite a cool discovery uh, back in 2014. I was on an expedition with, again, with World Wildlife Fund Guyanas and Global Wildlife Conservation to this area um, kind of 
in the uplands of the Guyana Shield. And I was doing a, a night hike and my flashlight kind of caught this bright blue shimmer. Um, and so when you're when you're out on night hikes in the jungle, you start to learn what types of species have different color eye shine. Um, so then you know basically whether to just walk right by it and ignore it. Like moths um, tend to have like a purplish orange eye shine. Spiders will have like a, a greenish blue tinge, but this was a, a blue reflection that I hadn't seen before. Um, so I went back to this stump where I saw it um, and did a double take and it happened to be the four legs of this tarantula. Um, and so as I was like looking around this stump a little more, I noticed that there was a series of different holes from I'm assuming where the branches used to stick out. Um, but instead there were these bluish tarantulas in almost every single one of the holes. Um, so I gently coaxed one out um, with a little stick and got it into the Ziploc bag. And the majority of this tarantula was this brilliant cobalt blue color. Um, so I took a lot of photographs, a number of meet your neighbors images, and then released the tarantula back to the hole where I found it. Um, and then once I got back to civilization, when my stint for this expedition was over. I immediately sent the pictures to my colleague. And I mean, as much as you can hear someone yelling and shouting through an email, that's what this one was. Um, and he was just like, this is it's unquestionably a new species. You need to be shouting from the roof. This is going to be like a beacon of com conservation for Guyana invertebrates. And then a, another colleague went back afterwards and was able to collect a few of them to send to this guy. Um, unfortunately, the description for the species hasn't taken place yet, but this tarantula, you know, made waves internationally. Um, and it's something that local Guyanese really, really got behind. Um, they're at the, the Georgetown Zoo. They, it's bordered by this really large white concrete wall and they have murals painted of some of the different species within that are in the zoo um, and next thing I knew they painted a huge mural based on one of my meet your neighbors images of this blue tarantula so everyone driving through Georgetown you know knows of their their blue tarantula um, so it was really cool to see so many people get so excited about a spider that's so fun. That's what I mean. Like people seem to it, like they're creeped out by tarantulas or spiders in general, but tarantulas in particular, I think, really hold that. You know, they're just bigger. They jump. They you know, you could see more hair on them. So I think people recognize them more. You know, right. per se. So, well, that's kind of fascinating that you have a new species of tarantula that you've you've helped discover. Yeah, and I one at of least my, for Guyana. Right. One of I really. I, over the years, I really started to try to use my camera to try to show almost, um, for, for lack of better words, a, a cuddly side to some of these creatures that so many people would be afraid of. I mean, you know, I work with snakes, a lot of deadly snakes, and generally people don't like them. Um, so to try to just turn a new light, a new concert, uh, conversation about these species and just get people to to see them a little bit differently. And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. When you have a deep rooted hatred for a particular type of animal, that's definitely hard to change. But, you know, I over the years, I've, I've had several interactions with people that have acknowledged that my images have made them more comfortable with some of these things that they previously wouldn't have been. And, you know, I consider all of those big wins. That's fantastic. You make me think of, so I spent a lot of time over the last few years in Louisiana and which is a very different habitat and climate than Colorado. And, and I know when you mentioned the, the headlamps, you know, at night down there is kind of when everything comes out. It's hot during the day. Everything kind of comes out at night. And I remember, you know, walking my dog and the headlamp would catch all these sparkly things on the ground. And we're like, what the heck are those? And you look at them really close and they were actually spiders. 
And you can see there were it was the same spider, but all different sizes. And depending upon how big that glow was, but that's the same thing. It was, and you wouldn't see them during the day at all. Okay. Now, whether they either just disappear into the back into the trees, or if they're still in the grass where we were seeing them at night, and but just not as easily defined during the day, I'm not sure. But, but like you said, if you just start to pay attention to what's around you, and it was all it's all it was was just the headlamp catching. I get, I'm assuming it was the eyes on them, yeah. or some sort of marking on their back, maybe. But yeah, it was. I mean, there were there was just hundreds of them right within a you know a few square foot area. It's like, oh my gosh, look how many spiders there are around here. Yeah, certainly something that a lot of people would be fascinated by, and a lot of other people would rather just never know that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I could see that. But I think Louisiana in general has a. I mean, it has some beautiful places down there, but there's a lot of cover. Um, yeah, you know, there's a lot of things that I think kind of hide back in that. You know, if they want to. So one of the things I was going to ask, and I know Ron and, and the guys over at Wild and Expose ask this a lot of the guests that come on, is what's been your favorite project or your favorite destination that you've been to? For the longest time, understandably, it was Guyana. Um, and I mean, Guyana will always be home away from home for me. But, and this is something that I know a lot of Tampa members have experienced. Um, a few years ago, I had an incredible opportunity to go to Alaska and shoot grizzly bears um, and whatever other wildlife we saw. So this was, uh, gosh, I'd, I wouldn't say it was in 2015, maybe 2016. And Art Wolf had put out a next generation photographers grant. And it was for geared towards people under at the time under the age of 30. And you had to submit uh, a portfolio and, you know, some essays about your your background as a photographer and your interests um and very last day i decided to just go for it and apply it for it um as did a number of my friends it wound up working out that of the i think there were seven of us um at the time five of us were already close friends through nampa um it was people like gabby salazar and todd amaker ben olson um so we basically all just had this once in a lifetime dream trip to go to Katmai with Art Wolf and they basically be flown into the Katmai wilderness every single day with each other to photograph the bears, photograph salmon, uh, photograph the landscapes. And, you know, I've been beyond fortunate to experience some absolutely incredible wildlife in Guyana, but that first experience of just being around bears and you know watching them fish and the interactions between the cubs and the mother it was just you know it feels like it was yesterday it, everything was that just awe-inspiring um and I, that trip is going to always and forever be my top three favorite wildlife photography experiences i mean for the bears alone but then also to experience it with such close friends um you know it was just such an incredible opportunity um and to this day like i don't have many printed images that i've taken in my own house but i have an enormous bear canvas from that, <laughs> that trip just because i i need that reminder every day well as, as somebody that takes a group up to alaska every year unfortunately not this year but um takes a group up there every year it is I love watching everybody's first time being around bears and seeing how close they get. I mean, because the bears, at least up there, um, for the most part, especially during salmon season, don't pay too much attention to people because they're worried about catching salmon. And it's, you know, just that interaction and the, and the you know, being in their environment and watching them. No, I, I completely understand how that is just absolutely mesmerizing. It, it It's one of those things for me that, you know, before the trip, I've seen, just like a lot of people, hundreds and hundreds of bear images. And it's like, wow, that's a really cool image. But you don't necessarily feel something. But then going there and taking, you know, what really worked out to be the same exact types of bear images that thousands of other people have, but I don't care because I now have them. It gave me a new appreciation for like seeing images of lions if you or elephants and species that i haven't had the opportunity yet to go see in person and photograph but i now see those the images of these other species that may not have moved me as much initially but i i see them in a very different light now 
courtesy of that experience. Well, that sounds like a phenomenal experience, especially with Art Wolf. Yeah, it was um, it was it was life changing. I think it speaks to the opportunities that we have as photographers, number one, and and also researchers have to, you know, demonstrate the value of, of just being out there. It's people don't want to buy images like they used to. And there's a changing face of, you know, a market for like stock photography, for instance, because a lot of magazines are going virtual. Uh, they're no longer in print and the need for stock photography has been reduced. So the opportunities to take people out there and experience these things firsthand, I think that's the adventure that people are looking for. And I think it, you know, does nothing more than go back to what we talked about right out of the gate uh, today and get them involved in that natural process, or at least create a curiosity that hopefully will be lifelong. I agree. I'll be honest. This is one of the things that that I really felt from my very first experience with joining Nampa. I, I joined in 2013 after um, being accepted for the college scholarship that they were offering. And from that moment, I mean, just being surrounded by so many like-minded people that it wasn't just that these were like-minded photographers, but like everybody was just so supportive of one another and encouraging. Um, and I mean, to this day, some of my absolute closest friends are people that I've met through this Nampa journey. And there's just this, this camaraderie that it, it seems like if everybody wants to see each other succeed, everybody's always willing to, to give tips and pointers and, and just, be available. Um, and if it weren't for that, I mean, I don't, I don't think my photography career would have taken off like it did if it weren't for Nampa and the opportunities just through networking and meeting people that, you know, I, I, I give that Namp initial Nampa experience a, a whole lot of credit for why I am where I am with my career, both as a biologist, but now also making sure to wear the hat as a photographer as well. Yeah, we hear that a lot through, with different Nampa people, you know, that they, the networking, the friend, even the friendships they build, you know, because it's a community of people that have like interests and, you know, like passions. Yeah. And I think it, it kind of speaks for itself to the amount of college scholarship recipients that make like myself when I joined uh, or took part, I was a grad student and the amount of grad students that are in biology pursuing say a phd that then go on to pretty much dedicate their career to science communication is is dramatic there's a whole lot of people and you know there's a need for both but there is especially a need for people who understand the deep science but then also possess the the photographic skills to really be able to tell that story i mean that's so important now more than ever yeah, there used to be a day when they would have a photographer that would join them. But these days, I think for the most part, you know, whether it's budget cuts or, you know, a variety of different things that have changed over the years, I think a lot of scientists are doing their own photography now. And, you know, so it's it is a nice way to kind of combine a, a scientific interest with a creative interest, too. Absolutely. Andrew, why don't you, so let's get kind of, we can, we've gone through a ton of great information today, but I want to make sure that Andrew has a chance to tell people how to get in touch with him as well as how to get involved with the conservation committee in Nampa and how they could submit into the uh, meet your neighbors program. You can find my website at www.andrewmsnyder.com. Uh, my Instagram handle is andrewsnyder87. Um, I do have a photography page on Facebook, which has been a little less active than I'd like. Um, that's Andrew Snyder Photography. And if there's any interest in reaching out to me for anything related to Nampa or the Conservation Committee, uh, projects you'd love to see being done, or just general questions, um, you can email. There's an email address on Nampa's webpage um, for the information, I think it's info at nampa.org. So if you just submit an email there, everything will then get directed back to me if it's specific to the conservation committee. And 
I am more than happy to uh, be available on Facebook or any other forms of social media for communication. If you are interested in joining the Meet Your Neighbors project, you can find Meet Your Neighbors uh, on Facebook. Um, and if you need more information about joining, I would reach out to Clay Bolt, who is the founder of the project. And I want to make sure that everybody stays tuned over the next few months for the official launch of Nampa's iNaturalist project. Fantastic. And we'll make sure to include all those in the show notes, all those various links as well, so that there's easy access for the information. So I want to say thank you to Andrew for joining us today. I think the information was, was really, really informative. And I just, I love the conservation work that he's doing and just the conservation committee in general for Nampa. There, you know, there's so many different things going on with, with Nampa. And I know that's a, that's a big one. Um, it's a big, big area that seems to be growing in nature photography as well. So anything else with you, Ron? That otherwise we can wrap it up for today till the next episode. No, it was a it was a fantastic conversation and Andrew, thank you very much for your time. Thank your daughter for your time also. <laughs> well, thank you guys. This was this was so much fun. Very cool. Well, thank you again everybody for joining us on the Nature Photographer podcast brought to you by Wild and Exposed. Definitely subscribe to the Wild and Exposed podcast so that you can keep getting their episodes as well as these episodes that we do in tandem with them. And then until the next episode, have fun shooting out there. Bye.